You're listening to Freedom Christian Fellowship's podcast. Hey, so are we waiting on a battery? Is this, are we good to go? We're just going to go with it. Hey, good morning. Uh, missed you guys the last couple of weeks. I was out on a, a training assignment and <clears throat> suffering for Christ in Florida, so um, really glad to to be back with you. Hey, so you guys have been going through a lot about uh, prayer. Uh, Pastor Andy's been uh, talking through the uh, Lord's Prayer, the model prayer that, that Jesus gives us. Um, so we wanted to take just a quick pause as we were in our staff meetings uh, and, and discuss a certain kind of prayer, a very special kind of prayer, uh, and that's the prayer of intercession. And so I wanted to uh, just kind of walk through a couple of things, um, what we mean whenever we say intercessory prayer. There may be some notes. I kind of gave it to Justin last night at like 2 in the morning. So if we don't have them, that's fine, too. I I plan on uh, taking you guys to some scriptures. If you do have your Bible, we will be looking at quite a few passages of scripture. Um, I'll give you a heads up. It'll take you a couple minutes because... Jonah is hard to find, so we're going we're gonna to be in Jonah for a little bit, but we'll be moving around, so um, you'll just have to stay with me. So what do we say whenever we say intercessory prayer? We usually mean this. It's a kind or a time of prayer where one is pleading with God to move in a matter that seems beyond our ability to influence or control. There's something going on that we don't have the wherewithal to overcome and we are now going, okay, I need a higher power on this one. I need to bring in some special forces. Uh, I need to pray uh, for the Lord to do something. A sick friend needs a healing. A family member is going through a hard financial situation. Your spouse is struggling with an addiction. Your kid is wayward and, and making reckless choices. The country is on the brink of a major election or a vote. A foreign nation is reeling from a natural disaster or war. A coworker, a neighbor, a friend or a loved one does not know the Lord. There are times where we plead with the Lord. I want to take a look at three very well-known figures in Scripture when they found themselves pleading with God over a situation. But then I also want to present to you a cautionary tale when it comes to intercession. So three stories and then a cautionary tale woven uh, throughout these stories is going to be some truths that we must recognize and establish in our hearts and minds before we engage in intercession. And that's this. We have to keep this as paramount. God is sovereign. We must deal with this before we deal with anything else. Sovereign's a big five-letter word. That's, that's not true. It's a, it's a five-cent word is what I meant to say. Um, it just means this. It means supreme power. So when we say that so-and-so is sovereign, that means they have complete control over their situation. Uh, They don't have to talk to anybody else. They don't need to consult with anyone else. They get to make the decision unilaterally. Our president is not sovereign, okay? The king of England is not sovereign. Uh, Whenever you think of sovereignty, think actually back to like some Old Testament figures like King Nebuchadnezzar. This dude had to answer to no one. He could do whatever he wanted, okay? Uh, this, This is the kind of power we don't really see sovereign Uh, in our modern political ways uh, today like we did in the scriptures of old. Sovereignty is um, important. Jesus' model prayer includes uh, this, and it's actually woven throughout so much of the scripture. Um, When Jesus says, pray the Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's referring to sovereignty. Isaiah 55, 9 poetically reminds us, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the Father's ways higher than your ways, and the Father's thoughts in your thoughts, Isaiah is reminding us that he's sovereign. Psalms 115.3 soberly teaches that our God's in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. 103.19 says this, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. 
Proverbs 21, 1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream in the hands of the Lord, and he will bend it and turn it wherever he will. You think you're in control? This is God saying, nah, not, not even close. Some might see these verses or verses like them as an excuse not to pray at all. Why are we even bothering with prayer if he's just going to do whatever he wants? Seems kind of like a waste of time. And I honestly actually struggled with that for a long time until some really great biblically rooted teaching came my way uh, and really flipped it all on its head for me. Um, If God isn't sovereign, why are you praying at all? If he's not all powerful, aren't you wasting your time? If he can't actually do what it is that you're asking him to do, you're wasting your breath. But if he is sovereign, then he can. He can. Now we got to go back to the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done, though, not mine. This is a sobering thought. Not even Jesus gets all of his prayers answered. Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. Blood, sweat mixed, pouring from his vessels in his face. I don't want to do this. Is there some other way? What was God's answer? Silence. He didn't get a response at all. Why? Because he'd already spoken, and he's sovereign. Not even Jesus gets all of his answers whenever he prays, because God's sovereign. That's sobering. We don't like to think about that. Okay, but Jesus as our model says, not my will, but yours be done. God's sovereignty should embolden our prayers because he does have the power to actually do what we're asking. But we have to remain humble and full of trust in God's goodness in his sovereignty. And that's the second kind of key, pre-key. We're not even in my three points yet. But he's good, and you have to maintain that while you're maintaining that position of humbleness about his sovereignty. Let's look at a few instances in Scripture. I want to show you a few keys that are running through them in regards to this special kind of prayer. Uh, first one I want to take us to is Genesis 18, 16. We're going to read a couple of verses there. And this is an interesting interaction between Abraham and God. Okay, so setting the stage just a little bit. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is uh, Lot, uh, Abraham's cousin, or nephew rather, um, has decided he wanted to move to this particular uh, twin cities, and, and that they're rife with evil. Uh, they're, they're just some bad towns. Um, I don't think there's anything on planet Earth right now that we can compare this to. Um, God shows up to Abraham, and basically he's talking to him about some things with Sarah, and, and this, this promised birth that's going to come. And, um, but then as the, they're departing, God throws like a curveball in the conversation. He's like, oh, hey, and by the way, I'm going to destroy Sodom. I'm going to completely like lay waste to Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, wait a second, my nephew lives there. Okay, so we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 16. Uh, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation for all the earth to be blessed by him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to this outcry 
that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so in verse 22, the men turned from there, and they went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, hey, will, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare it for their sake. And if you know the story, it keeps going. <clears throat> Abraham gets kind of bold. He's like, okay, 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 so 50 were good. Hey, what if there's 45? God says, sure, I'll spare them if there's 45. Okay, um, what if there's 40? Sure, I'll spare them if there's 40. And this goes on all the way down to 10. And Abraham says, but Lord, what if, what if there's just 10? What if there's only 10 righteous people in both of these two cities? Would you still destroy it? I'll spare it if there's 10. Look at the end of the verse there, and it's at um, verse 33. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's important to know what's in the Scriptures. It's also important to see what's not there. What's not there is God said, all right, enough, Abraham. I'm, I'm tired of this bargaining game. It's not what happens. Abraham ends the conversation. Not God. Interesting to think about. Would Abraham have said, what if there's just five? What if it's just Lot's family? What if it's just Lot? Would you still destroy it? We don't know because Abraham doesn't continue to ask. What's motivating Abraham to intercede? If you look at verse 23, what's motivating Abraham to intercede, it actually isn't Lot. He never brings that up. What's motivating Abraham to, uh, to, inter or to intercede uh, for these two cities is God's character. God, you're too just to do something like destroy the righteous on account of the wicked. Now, does God need a reminder of his character? That catch God is like, oh, snap, you're right. Good call. I'm glad you caught that one, Abe. Now, what's really going on here? God was revealing to Abraham what was really in Abraham's heart. Who am I to you, Abraham? Abraham deemed God trustworthy and good and just and thus pleaded with God on account of this discrepancy. He said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Hold on. This doesn't line up with what I thought about you. This doesn't line up with who I think you are. This wasn't about God letting Abraham know he was going to destroy a nation and then Abraham changing his mind. And this was about God needing Abraham to know some things about his own character hey, where do you have me in your heart, Abraham? Am I good? Am I who you think I am? His burden for Sodom was fueled by his understanding of the character and nature of God. And that's the first point. Our intercession is rooted in the character and nature of God. All right, second point. Let's go to Exodus 34. And that's chapter 34. And it's going to be in verse 6 is where we're going to start. While y'all are finding that, hey, my, my brother Will is in the building. Wave at me, Will. Hey, he covered for me while I was gone to Florida, and apparently it was pretty good. Thanks, man. You're making me nervous for my job. Now, thank you so much uh, for bringing the word, bro. 
I know I've heard some great stories of the, the things that's happened in the lives of our youth. Um, Pastor Andy, the reason why they were silent whenever you mentioned the prayer night thing is because they felt convicted because they're not doing that themselves. Okay? All you got to do is get a CD, guys. Put it on. You can worship the Lord. You don't need a band. All right. We there? Exodus 34. Uh, Actually, you know what? I'm going to read this one to you. Don't worry about that. Sorry, you had to find it. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, this is the character and nature of God revealed to us in the Old Testament. We see this is what God is like. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he's faithful, and he's just. And so Moses is actually going to be our second story. Moses has sent spies. If you remember the story, he sent spies into the land of Canaan. They've arrived at the Jordan. All right, let's go. Let's go actually see what it is that uh, God's given us. And so he sends these 12 spies representing the 12 tribes. They go into the land. They come back after a set period of days. And out of the 12, 10 of them are, like, dismayed. They're just like, nope. The odds are stacked against this. These men are more powerful. They have technology we don't have. They have war uh, knowledge that we don't have. We're like grasshoppers, and they're like giants. Two of the 12 are like, no, we've got God on our side. That's ridiculous. Well, God is very upset with this response from these 12 men. In fact, actually, what he's really upset with is the fact that they incite a riot against Moses' leadership. Uh, They're about to try to overthrow Moses as the leader of this tribe. And God steps in, boom, the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle. And we're going to read Numbers. It's actually going to be Numbers 14, 11, and we're going to read through verse 23. And the Lord said this to Moses, how long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I'm going to strike them down. I'm going to give them a pestilence and I'm going to disinherit them. And I'm going to make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. In verse 13, this is awesome. Moses says to the Lord, whoa, 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 whoa. Then the Egyptians will hear of this for you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, have you heard that the Lord are amidst these people? For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say it's because the Lord was not able to bring these people to the land that he swore to give to them. That's why he's killed them in the wilderness. Now, let this happened. Let the, the power of the Lord be great as you've promised, saying the Lord's slow to anger. and He's abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of these people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven these people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your word. But truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of these men who've seen my glory will inherit this land. Okay, so Moses is pleading with God, whoa, 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 don't destroy them. As cool as it sounds to start over with me and to scratch everything you've talked to Abraham about, I don't like that. Let's not do that. Moses' burden 
for the people to be pardoned was fueled by his love for them. Moses realizes as he's saying this, as he's pleading with God, wait, no, actually, that would be terrible. Don't do that. Your character and nature would be on trial, but also you're destroying these people. They're my countrymen. I love them. That would be really bad for them. So step one, we have to have our intercession rooted in the character and nature of God, and we see that in Moses' prayer. And number two, our intercession has to be rooted in a shared love for what God loves. Moses needed to know in his own heart that he wasn't just their boss. He wasn't just their prince of Egypt. But he was now becoming more and more their shepherd. And a great picture for what Jesus will be one day coming. A third story. It's in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. I'm just going to read this one to you. So Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer. He didn't even give her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he said to her. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to give the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yet she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great's your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. All right, so what is going on here? Because it sounds like Jesus is a super jerk in this story. Okay, like hashtag uh, Jesus jerk, right? So, youth pastor. Um, is Jesus being mean? Like is, like, is he really just, like, being cruel? Is he like, no, I'm not for the Canaanites. I'm for the, the Jews. So, pff, be gone. Or is there something more happening here? I think there is. I think this is a test. Seems kind of harsh, unless Jesus is up to something. Did this woman just win a debate with Jesus? Did he, you know, just lose to some logic that she employs? Hardly. We're seeing God in Jesus testing this woman, just like God's tested these other two men. She's apparently heard the stories and rumors about Jesus, and she believed in her heart that he was who he said he was, but she also believed that through the house of Israel and ultimately through this Messiah that the whole world would be blessed, not just the Jews. Jesus wanted her to say out loud what she believed in her heart. Paul writes about this later. If you're going to be saved, you need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And this is what he was doing. He was putting her to the test, putting all of her faith and confidence in Jesus. And that's the third point. Our intercession is rooted in an unwavering faith in God's work through Jesus. We pray with those three things in mind. So what's really going on here in these stories? God's testing them. God was never going to destroy. This is my, this is conjecture. God was never going to destroy those few righteous people in Sodom. He was never going to start fresh with Moses, and he was certainly always going to heal this little girl. He was always going to deliver the righteous and forgive his covenant people. Abraham didn't change God's mind. Moses didn't get him to do something that he wasn't already intending to do. And this Canaanite woman didn't shame Jesus 
into healing her daughter. God uses intercession for getting us in line with where he is. He will get us, uh, give us a burden for something because he knows it's close to our hearts, and he can use that to work on us. When we feel a burden for some things, like, okay, I can leverage that to do a work in your heart. When we engage in intercession, we are not trying to convince God or sway God with our prayers. Brace yourselves, that's called witchcraft, okay? The prophets of Baal, they're just wailing, going crazy, doing all kinds of songs and dance, cutting themselves, trying to manipulate a God that they believe in to do some miracle. That is not our God. That's actually a gift, we don't have to be like that. Jesus tells us in one of the prayers, hey, don't be like the heathens who just go on and on with your stories and your prayers and your petitions and your many words. Don't do that. Your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you even ask. Sovereignty language. So what is going on in intercession? We don't have the kind of power to control God or manipulate him. And where we thought we did... God might be trying to reveal to us some deep-seated misconceptions of his character and nature, or maybe even some idolatry in us that we really want what we want more than God's will. Or he might be revealing to us that our faith isn't where it needs to be, that there's some room for maturity in our faith. Prayer is really about aligning our heart to God's heart. It's about breaking our hard hearts for the things that break God's heart. Uh, The band Hillsong released a song a while back called Hosanna, and in the bridge it has this really powerful couple of words, and I think it really captures intercession. The words say this, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from here into eternity. Man, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's intercession. Where are you at, Lord? That's where I want to be. What's, what's weighing on your heart right now? Who is weighing on your heart right now? That's what I want to pray about. Okay, now a cautionary tale. Go to the book of Jonah. <clears throat> very, 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 very familiar story. We hear Jonah and the whale from day one whenever we're in kids' church. I have been studying Jonah quite a bit, and I'm frustrated because this has nothing to do with a fish. It has absolutely nothing to do with a whale. No thanks to the coloring books that we get handed in kids' church. If you're a kids' church worker and you are ready to teach about Jonah, tear out those pages and throw them away because they're worthless. All right, this has nothing to do with Jonah. This has nothing to do, actually it has everything to do with Jonah. It has nothing to do with a whale. Uh, and yet for some reason, uh, that's what we call it. We call it Jonah and the whale. Uh, Jonah is a cautionary tale about a, a guy, a, a man of God, uh, who's doing all the wrong things. Uh, and it's a cautionary tale about all of these people who are, doing, um, who are not God's people, who are uh, heathens, pagans, not Israelites, not Jews, and they're doing all the right things. Okay, And it's a cautionary tale for the church. We look at the book of Jonah like we look at a mirror, and it's going to tell us whether we got zits, whether we got crooked teeth or not. Okay, and Jonah is a, it's a mirror book, way more than it is a kid's story. Um, I get passionate about it because, man, it gets used wrong all the time. Man, okay, seriously, like I went on YouTube and I was just like, Book of Jonah, go! And I found this one that was kitty and cartoony and I watched it and, oh my gosh, they just added so much that's not in this story at all. I wish I could play it for you just so that we could all 
gas. Like, our kids are watching this. Frustrating. Okay, moving on. <sighs> kids Church. Uh, maybe one of the most poorly understood books in the Bible. Uh, this story has nothing to do with the whale. Uh, it is an indictment, uh, possibly a wake-up call for the American church today, and it starts with God calling Jonah to tell him to go to the great city of Nineveh and to warn them to repent of their evil ways. Jonah decides not to go uh, the 500-ish miles to Nineveh. Uh, instead, he opts to flee from the presence of God. Brilliant move. Uh, but by boat across the Mediterranean Sea to the land of Tarshish, which is probably, we don't know this for sure, but it's probably modern-day Spain. So he's rather than going 500 miles kind of northeast from uh, Israel, uh, he's decided he's going to get on a boat, and he's going to go 1,500-something miles as far as he knows where the end of the known world is. That's his plan. Brilliant. Possibly modern-day Spain. Okay. Uh, why flee? Because Jonah does not want Nineveh to be given a chance to repent. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the oppressor du jour, the sworn enemy of Israel as a nation. They have swallowed up every nation in their path. They have a reputation of being brutal, like Game of Thrones brutal. Like, they're awful. They are really, 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 really bad people. Um, they are attacking the northern parts of the kingdom, uh, Israel's kingdom. Um, they're barbaric. Their torture practices are horrific. They worship false gods. They practice dark arts. They are wicked, epitomized. And they are God's promised source of discipline for his people's hard-heartedness and disobedience. And God comes to Jonah and says, hey, I need you to go tell Nineveh to repent or else. Jonah wants no part in seeing these horrible people given a chance to repent of their ways. By the way, I'm convinced that Jonah is a teenager, that he is not an old man. And as we kind of read through the story of Jonah, you're going to realize that absolutely Jonah is a 15-year-old boy. Um, he is selfish. He is hasty. He is irrational. He is all over the place with his emotional responses. So this genius Jonah decides he's going to board a boat manned by Gentile sailors, complete with their worship practices of their own pagan gods, the one true God hurls. The actual word here in the Hebrew is like a javelin thrower, okay? He hurls this supernatural storm at this boat. The, I was about to say pirates. The sailors are like, I don't know, I was going to say pirates. They, they, they're losing their minds. They don't know what's going on. They are terrified. This is freaking them out. These are professionals, and they have never seen anything like this. Where's Jonah? Where's Jonah? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Okay. Supernatural storm, freaked out professional sailors. Jonah is asleep. Only a teenage boy can do that. Okay. <laughs> Convinced only a teenage boy can sleep through something like this so soundly. The sailors finally wake him up and ask him to pray to whoever his God is. Hey, join us. We're all praying to our own gods. Jonah flexes a little bit and he's like, actually, it's good that you wake me up because I serve the one true God, the you know, creator of heaven and earth, the sea, the land. And they're like, cool, yeah, pray to him too. <laughs> Never mind the fact that he's trying to flee from this very same God, the creator of the sea. Yeah, he's a genius. And so he's also consumed he, uh, by hatred for the Assyrians so much that he'd rather die than pray to God, call, you know, you know own his own mess, get the boat to turn back, to Israel. No, he'd rather die. He's like, it's better for me that I die 
but he's such a coward. Jonah is the worst. He's not even willing to own his own on this. He's like, you're going to have to throw me overboard. He's not going to jump. He doesn't care about these sailors. They're going to die in this storm. And he's like, you're going to have to. Th-. He, won't, he won't just jump on his own. And they're like, dude, we're not going to throw you. Then your blood's going to be on our hands. Like, no, 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 God won't do that. So they kind of deal with it, and they decide, yes, okay, so we're going to throw Jonah overboard. And he's like, okay, finally, I can just die and not have to deal with Nineveh. I don't have to deal with this pressure from God to go do this thing he's called me to do. And what happens, right? The storm subsides, and these sailors are freaked out, and they do the right thing. They repent. Scripture says that they take vows. They throw their idols overboard, and they realize that they've been serving the wrong gods all along. Okay, so blah, blah, blah. Okay, Jonah's now underwater. He's like, thank God, sort of. And he's dying, but then whoosh, right? This fish comes, grabs him, and he spends the next three days and three nights in the supernatural belly of this supernatural fish. It's not a whale. And um, somehow doesn't get digested. Okay, so this is a miraculous thing, okay? Uh, He's not digested. Instead, though, he is covered in everything that would be in a supernatural fish belly. It stinks, Probably got fish guts, seaweed, all coming. It's dark. Okay, this is not like Pinocchio. And sorry, uh, I didn't have enough sleep last night. After the appointed time, he kind of sort of clumsily pseudo prays while he's in there. Like he says all this like lofty grand stuff, but he never actually repents. Go back and read his prayer. It's horrible. Okay, it's, it's a paint by numbers prayer. It's terrible. He never actually repents. The time comes, this fish vomits him on dry land. Okay, it's one thing to clean up vomit. It's another thing to have to vomit. It's another thing entirely to be vomit. Okay, God is trying to humble this man. Okay, I think about the sailors. I think about the like, fishermen that are on the bank as this like, supernatural fish monster just goes, block, and here's Joan, and he's like, dang it. <laughs> like, how freaked out are they? And so he's, he's been humbled quite a bit, fueled by little more than begrudging submission. And he sets out for Nineveh. And I imagine this is, he's taking the longest way possible. He is kicking every rock. He is trying to stall every single way he can possibly stall on his way to Nineveh. It's about, like I said, a, a 500-ish mile journey. And then he gets there. The Bible tells us that Nineveh, the city, is so great that a man would have to walk for three days to get from one end of the city to the other. He gets about a day in and preaches the most limp prayer or message of repentance ever. Okay, it is the worst repentance revival message ever. Some of you actually wish that we would preach more like this. It's five words long. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's all he says. And he's like, fine, God, I did it. And he starts to walk out, and then he starts to hear wailing and crying and people freaking out. And he finds out that the message got all the way to the king, like, super fast. And the king's like, oh, my gosh. And he falls on his knees, and he calls one of the greatest revival repentance um, ever recorded in history. All of Nineveh, from palace to pasture, from king to cattle, repent. Jonah's little five-word message of doom and gloom actually has a whoopsie in it because he used the wrong word. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word actually has two meanings, overthrown. He's thinking like, y'all are going to get destroyed. He didn't realize that that word has a secondary definition. 
because he's dumb. And it actually means, like, given a chance to repent. Like, it, it has the opportunity to fix things. It's going to have a chance to flip the page, turn the other leaf, all these different ways that we might say it. And Jonah didn't realize that that word he used was the exact right word. And so it happens. This thing that he didn't want to happen happens, and he is royally peeved. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 4 real quick. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Okay, angry about what? Revival. He was angry that these people that he had deemed so horrible had just listened and done exactly the right thing, and God was pleased with it. He's so upset. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Notice that Jonah doesn't even answer God. Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east and he made himself a little shed for himself there, and he sat underneath it in the shade, and he wanted to see what would become of this great city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And He asked that he might die again and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This dude is a teenager. And the Lord said, hey, Joe, you, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who, you do not, who do not know their right hand from their left and also so much cattle. I love the way the book of Jonah ends. We don't get Jonah happily ever after. We don't get Jonah ever showing remorse for his behavior. And we also get a reminder that God loves cows. I love that. It just ends. We never know how God responds to uh, how Jonah responds to God's object lesson about this plant. We just get bratty Jonah clapping back at God about his temper tantrum, and God patiently trying to get Jonah to see the point this whole time. Jonah, you care more about your own nationality, your own hate, your own desire for vengeance, your own prejudice, your own skin, your own pride, your own agenda, your own comfort, and this stupid little green thing that is more than the outcome of over 120,000 people. Jonah, your priorities are off. God was going to save these people one way or the other. He sits in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He was going to save these people with or without Jonah, but it was for Jonah's good 
that he was invited into this. God invited Jonah to come and participate in the joy of salvation, the joy of revival. But Jonah's heart was hard and calloused, and God knew this and loved Jonah too much to let him live another day that way. Oh, and by the way, Nineveh is modern-day Mosul, Iraq. You might be familiar with Mosul. It was ground zero for some serious warfare in the last few years. It basically sits at the center of the Middle East, the war-torn region of the world. Yeah, that Middle East, the same one that is also held in the grips of Islam, that Middle East, the home of many of the sworn enemies of God's people. Not much has changed in umpteen thousand years. But shouldn't God care about the great city of Nineveh? And how many more people fill that land now since then? Do we care more about our own nationality, America? Our own hate? Our own desire for vengeance? Our own sworn enemies? Our own prejudice? Our own skin? Our own pride? Our own agenda? Our own comfort? And this stupid little green thing so much more than we do the outcome of so many people around the world? Do we care at all, really, for what's going on in the world? Australia's on fire. Y'all laughed at that. That's weird. Europe is in financial ruin and likely to be overrun by Islam soon. Africa continues to be plagued by starvation and disease. Many South American nations are pillaged by money-hungry businesses and still don't have clean water. Asia has the largest human population, and the vast majority live in squalor. Meanwhile, North America continues to retain most of the world's wealth. The U.S. only makes up for about 5% of the world's population. And these are just the physical realities, much less the spiritual realities. How many of these people around the world don't know the Lord. True intercession might just cause some insidious, dark things in us to bubble up to the surface. Jonah knew that, and he didn't want to face some ugly realities in himself. Hey, Justin, you can go and come up. I think we can do better than emo Jonah. Can we instead align our hearts with God's heart and ask him in intercession where we need to point our feet, where we need to set our agenda in prayer. What breaks your heart, God? Where are my priorities off? Do I have my faith placed in Jesus' work for the whole world? Do I care about your character, your nature, your reputation? Do I share a love for what God loves? Who knows? Maybe. God's preparing the next Nineveh for salvation. And I, for one, want to be a part of the next massive, widespread revival in history. From king to cattle, from palace to pasture. I asked Justin to play a particular part of a very famous song. And in light of what we've just heard, I think the words are going to scream at you a little louder than maybe they have in the past. 
Um, if you want to pray about anything that was shared this morning, um, I'm happy to hang back and pray. Any of the other pastors are happy to pray with you. Uh, but I would invite you where you are uh, to spend some time reflecting, um, asking the Lord to show you a mirror, kind of like what the book of Jonah is. Do I have my priorities right? Do I pray about the right things? Or am I always seeking my own skin? Wow, that was a great word. It's a challenging word. You know, one place I think that we can start in this process that we need to be challenged by is this, is that in all these things, these points on intercession, being rooted in the nature of God, sharing and praying for what God loves, being rooted in the person and the power of Jesus, that that agreement has to take hold of our responses and our reactions. And I can't help but think about this, that as we're challenged to look beyond ourselves and to ask God for something bigger to give us fresh eyes to see that 
in part, we would kind of miss this entirely as if we didn't just look right through the, the very first things that we see. That if we would pray for this, our world, if we would invite the Holy Spirit to, to give us a heart to see the people of this world the same way He does, would we too ask God to help us to see this nation the way He does? And let me just be blunt. I'm going to be blunt, and, I, and I, I, I may offend some people, and it's not my heart's intent, but I, I need to be really clear that as part of the power of intercession, there has to be an active agreement with what God says under His sovereignty. And what that doesn't do is give us permission to speak what we desire as a matter of who we are to the issues that face this nation. When we refrain from falling into the sovereignty and yielding to the love of Jesus, but instead inflecting our opinion on the matters of this earth, we are relinquishing the nature of intercession and the power of the Holy Spirit to move. And if God has to correct anything, and I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. That's not the point. The point is that in order for us to become a people who hunger and thirst to see God move, can it start with us? Can it start in our heart? Can it start in our nation? Can it spread through the world? God, will you control us can we be a people and anything listen I'm, we're, we're done this is it and I'm just going to invite you into this one thing and then we're done I'm not re-preaching anything but if anything if there's any purpose to the 21 days of prayer and fasting it is to become a people that begin to empty ourselves of ourselves, so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might be filled with 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 the character of Jesus Christ and the question I'm asking every one of you today are, is what you're doing bringing and reflecting the truth of the grace of the resurrected Jesus Christ? Is what you're doing in your household reflecting that? Is what you're doing to your spouse reflecting that? Because don't dare pray for the nations of this earth. Is what you're doing on Facebook reflecting that? Father, would you help us today? Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? God, we can't, we can't walk away from this message. And what I, what I hear, God, I'm going to talk to you for a minute, God, and I'm going to let them listen. But Lord, what I hear is this, is that there is a shift that's happening, God. That you're, you're raising up a generation, Lord God, that's coming with a lot of questions. And oh Lord, listen, we understand the things that divide us, God. We understand them so well. We debate them. We talk about them. Oh, we linger over them, Lord. But, but Lord, would, we, would you stop us? Would you still us, God? Would you, would you quiet us? Would you humble us, Lord, that we might hear your heart? That, Father, we might be filled with so much of your love, the understanding of who you are, that, God, that we would see, Lord, through your eyes, that you would give us supernatural grace 
Lord, that healing would come, that healing would come into our marriages, that healing would come with our children, that it would come into our homes, that it would come into our schools. Lord, we don't know the answers, God, but we know that you know. And so we invite you. But God, what we're inviting specifically is that you shift us and that you change us, that you mold us into who you are. God, would you heal our nation? Lord, would you pour out your spirit on this nation again? Lord, would you begin to move, Lord God, across the earth? Would you move in us? Would you move in us? So, Lord, touch our mouth. Lord, touch our heart. Lord, touch our mind. Lord, touch our ears. Touch our mouth, Lord. Touch our mouth, God. Heal our words. Lord, heal our hearts. Lord, touch our minds. That we might think your thoughts. Lord, touch our ears. That we might hear your voice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please? Let me just bless you. I want you all to know I love you very much. I want to invite you tonight to come out at 6 o'clock to pray, to worship, to be excited, to rejoice before the Lord. I believe God's going to do some wonderful things. There's a couple of things specifically I feel that we're going to pray for together, believe God for. And I'm really excited about that. Father, I just bless these folks, Lord. I pray that they get uh, first in line at the restaurant that they go to today, Lord. And that they give them extra helpings, Lord God, of macaroni and cheese. Or whatever they're eating, Lord. <laughs> but Father, in all seriousness, Lord, let your word sink into us that we might walk away. Lord, change in your presence, Father God. Burden us with intercession, Lord. Lord, burden us for the intercession for our families, for our children, Lord, for our neighborhoods, Lord, for our country, Lord, for this world. We pray, God, sear into us your heart. Lord, let our hearts break for what breaks your heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.